my friends, I'm Sheila Pearl, the Love Doctor, and let's talk about making love better. So in this podcast experience and this journey, the conversations I have with friends and associates and colleagues and, and uh, clients even, I explore the various faces of love. I like to say love has many faces and love is something we experience in many different arenas of our life. So we love people, we love our work, we love food, we love good wine, we love travel. In other words, we use that word love in many different ways. The question is, how are they all interconnected and, and what difference does that make in our experience of life and our experience of feeling fulfilled and satisfied? So I've invited uh, a good friend and colleague, actually one of my coaches, with me today on this conversation, Raju Panjwani. Do I pronounce your name correctly? Yes, you got that right. I love the I love the way Americans pronounce my name, so I just go along with it. So, so how do you pronounce it? Well, traditional the Indian way would be they they pronounce the J's, so it'll be Raju Panjwani. But I love it when when um, when the love of my life used to call me Raju, and it was so sweet. Uh, okay, okay. But you switched to Raju, but that's okay. It, just, it took a while. Oh. I, lo I love it though. I so I, I'm, I'm. My name's been butchered so many so many ways, but I love I love all the different ways that it's been. It's been. So, I should so, say. So so she called you Raju, and it's really Raju. Right. So of course, I mean, when you know, just the third or fourth meeting, we we, you know, she knew what the right pronunciation was. Like, <laughs> what would your mother call you? And that was the way to do it, right? So I was like, my mother called me Raju. So now, now everyone in my family calls me Raju that are American, right? So. Okay, so Raju. <laughs> so- There's a little lilt to that. But little, it is, it is, and you know, our names are so important, right? So, uh, so let's jump right in, Raju, because you refer to the love of your life. Mm. And one of the uh, connections you and I have one of the sweet bonds that you and I have is that we're both widowed mm -hmm. and we're widowed from life partners who were for both of us, the love of our lives. Mm. And that experience, whether it's a year or 32 years for me, I don't know how many years you were married to your love. I was with her for 21 years. Right, so we understand because of our experience that life is not about time. It is about magic. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've learned. And I know in my conversations with you, Raju, that that's part of your experience as well. That what we have experienced in having lived with and experienced the, the love of our lives with the love of our lives, it was an experience that no one can take away from us. Mm -hmm. And it's with us in many different ways all the time. So I often talk about the gifts of grief, the gifts of loss, is that somehow, I know for me anyway, Roger, that um, having experienced loss helps me appreciate more what I have and to remind me to pay attention to where I am in my life now and not to take anything for granted. You know, during this period of COVID, I'm sure none of us take for granted the power of a hug. Mm. 
and uh, you know may maybe previous to this we we would you know not think that much of it, but because we are kind of isolated and we, we can't see the people we normally see or hug them freely the way we used to, uh, we have a different take on something as simple as a hug. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I wanted to have you share with us the, the benefits and the gifts of the having lived with the love of your life and how you bring that into your personal and business life now so that you can use that experience of making love better in all of the aspects of your life, whether they're personal with your sons, whether mm -hmm. it's uh, with your business partners, with your colleagues in your, in your business endeavors as well. And I know you to be a very loving, generous man. And as uh, Eric Fromm says in his wonderful book, The Art of Loving, love is an attitude. It is a way of being. It is your sacred uniqueness. So talk mm. to us about your experience of love. Well, um, maybe, um, you know, there are some contrasts that lead us to then discover certain things about ourselves. I was going to go back to your word magic, uh, the magic of life. For me, it's about until I met, until I met this woman in 1993, I just had this idea of love in the romantic sense first of uh, having had an arranged marriage that uh, not to, not to say that the arranged marriage was a bad thing. Um, it was just a destructive sort of a relationship in the sense it was, it was just bad chemistry. Things do work out among arranged, you know, the arranged marriages and things don't work out in, in even love marriages. Um, so for me, I had just had this unrequited sense in, in my heart that you know all I knew about love was in the movies and the you know the books that I read about love and it was just the this magic of love that some people talked about it wasn't until I met Kim on a New York subway and it was a chance that she started talking to me I wasn't, I wasn't talking to anybody on subways. I'd lived here enough 15 or 18 years in New York to know that you don't talk to people on the subway. But here was this person starting to, you know, laugh and smile. And, and I said, you know, are you talking to me? And uh, so without going through the detail of that story, but that's where it hit. And that evening when I went home, I only had this 20 minute chance encounter with this woman who was from out of town visiting well, had been visiting and then lived here for a couple of years. And so she was relatively new to the city. And here is this beautiful, blonde, blue-eyed woman from Colorado. And she's talking to this Indian guy uh, who was in his suit, all drenched because it was a rainy night, summer. And I could not sleep that night. And all it was is, a, it was a, you know, how much can you talk in a first conversation? It was just, you know, what do you do? Where do you work sort of thing? And she was doing her PhD at Columbia and I was, you know, going back home and actually had a date that night. Um, and I was so disturbed that the next day I'd cancel all my dates and I don't even know. I mean, I hadn't set up a date with her yet. And I was like, I think I'm done, but I knew how to reach her. She knew how to reach me. I had given her my number, but I didn't take her number, but I knew how to find her. And so, so the magic happened to me that day. And I, I had no other, other than the 20 minute conversation. So like, 
oh my God, what just happened to me? So much that when I first got, went out with her on a date, which was, about, which was about a week later, and then I saw her every day for 47 days straight, every waking time and free time that I had, I would just be with her. But within, on the second date, I just knew that I was going to marry her no matter what uh, and find a way to be with her. So, so I'm sorry, I'm giving you all that context to just say that, hey, that's when magic happened. And I just knew that I was very blessed to have that because a lot of people I knew, even married and seemingly happily married, did not have that real love. So I'm going to jump in and notice out loud something else we have in common that I didn't know. Mm. My husband saw me from across a crowded room at the Waldorf Astoria <laughs> lobby as I was coming toward friends. He didn't know that it was me who was coming towards them, but I was, in, I was going to meet my roommate at Peacock Alley there, which is the lounge. Uh -huh. Of course. And he was with uh, friends of my roommate. And so when he saw me, he, he poked Diane and he said, you see that blonde over there? I'm going to marry her someday. And she said, oh, Aaron, don't be so silly. That's my roommate. She's coming to meet us. To which he said, well, that'll make it easier. <laughs> Somehow oh, lovely. he knew. Mm. And he didn't let go of that idea. I wanted nothing to do with him. Mm. <laughs> but, but we'll probably circle around to that intuitive hit that's a magical sort of mysterious kind of intuitive uh spiritual knowing that we can't really explain yeah and perhaps later in our lives we say ah that's what that was about mm -hmm. so continue <laughs> oh so you, you you mentioned that um you know either there is a shift that happens when you have have that some inexplicable experience in your life that causes you to feel a certain way that is not that's seemingly fairly poorly conveyed and described in movies and stories uh but when you see that you feel that oh yeah these these two lovebirds uh feel that love for each other or you mentioned you know so, some sort of a gift that happens when you have you know when something happens like this when when it it's you have grief because we, we, you lost your husband and I lost my wife, that um, it cracks you open in ways that is also very difficult to explain. Um, so I think the, the separately, I have nearly died and lost my life six times, um, three times with her as well involved. So I knew that I always knew life was short. My first experience was was one of being nearly killed by six people in a gang um, in, in, in New York back in 1983. So it was 20, 37 years ago. That was my first, and then I was then I and then I had drowned and then rescued by other people. So so and then the third was the tsunami where we were all together and we nearly lost our children and ourselves. So having had that encounter even before I met met this person I knew that life was short but somehow being with her life really became so short it's like 
oh my God, I got to spend every waking moment with her. Not to say that we didn't have our, you know, fights and, you know, fun debates and arguments about things in life. But, uh, and, and now, of course, when someone passes, you feel, oh, well, everything is the, the, the beautiful memory of that person. But, but I mean, we had our, we had our ups and downs and that's all life is. But the love that I felt, it, you know, her death really, really upset me in a big way. But, but more than that, living with her and knowing she was dying for three years, I died every day for those three years to a point where I became so clinical in taking care of, you know, when she had cancer, stage four. Uh, that was the big shift for me that I, I felt like she died when, I, when the diagnosis happened. And what what else could we do to to? So I devoted whatever we didn't know how long she was going to live, but so it turned out to be just over three years. And um, I just loved her even more. And then when she actually passed away, so in the three years, my my kid when when my, when my my kids were nine and thirteen, boys were nine and thirteen when she got diagnosed, and so they saw her dying too every every day for those three years. So they were a little bit older by the time she passed, but I didn't expect that when she would actually pass and given that we're actually, you know, I was very clinical, I had to do stuff that was, you know, what a nurse would do day to day to day. And I had put my entire career and life on hold during that time, uh, just to focus on my kids and, and, and her. I didn't realize when she died, there was really a big crack that opened up and my heart and I felt like I got to know her after her death more than I got to know her while I was living with her. Mm. I don't know if you've had that experience. I have. Uh, so I don't know. I can't explain that, but suddenly I feel over these almost six years now that she's been gone. Like I, like I feel her everywhere. You know, if I need to call on her, she's there. Mm -hmm. I can have a, you know, I don't mean conversations in that way, but I can speak with her spirit in ways that what would you do if this was a situation with your boys? And sometimes I don't know how to deal with it, but I just felt like I got to know her more. Um, and she was very unusual. I mean, I don't mean that because she's passed, but she was really an angel and everyone knew her being an angel. She never talked about herself. Anyone who ever met her even once felt like she was her best friend or their best friend. So I don't know. I think when, when you have someone with you, perhaps you don't value them as much until they're gone. Right. So I felt that I felt that big loss. Um, the kind of gift you refer to of that, it just feels like I didn't value that gift while she was alive, perhaps not as much as we would have liked. But in her death, I value her more than anything else. And that's also, therefore, exposed me to challenges in, you know, in moving forward. I've had quite a few challenges in my dating life, you know, of late and all of that. And um, so, yeah, I think there is, there is, maybe you'll ask me the questions and I can answer, but I, I don't know where to go with it. But Well, what I'm hearing is so common for all of us, Raju, and that is, <clears throat> you know, you value what you've lost once you've lost it. And uh, when, when you're in the, in, the, in the middle of the uh, living of your life, when you're, you know, present to 
the day-to-day life that we have with anyone. Uh, the ability to be present on different levels is often not there. So that's a reminder of the challenge that all of us have in moving forward to, to be aware that being present is a gift, as it were. And so often when we're with someone 5, 10, 20 years, we tend to take them for granted. It's not necessarily a bad thing. There's a certain comfort that goes with that. Mm-hmm. And the comfort is also a form of almost uh, numbing or not so much numbing as um, kind of not being on, on, on the edge of your chair. In other words, relaxing and, and not being attentive perhaps in the way you would normally be if you know that person isn't going to be around the next day. Yeah. Was not to live with gloom and doom, mm-hmm. but, but if and when we can remind ourselves, life is short for sure, but also life is fragile. Mm-hmm. And there is always this element of uncertainty every day, which, you know, all of us as human beings guard against that. You mm-hmm. know, we buy insurance to guard against the uncertainty of, of right. losses of one kind or another. But, you know, with our loved ones, is there such a thing as insurance? You know, and and if you're if you're willing to be totally vulnerable mm-hmm. with your loved one, that would require you to be present to the possibility you could lose that person. And of course, with the very people that we love the most, we fear losing the most, right? Mm-hmm. So we're in that push-pull of the, the, the duality between going towards the fear and going towards the trusting that it's all perfect somehow and, right. and not pushing against the uncertainty, but moving into it, recognizing in all uncertainty is also all possibilities, which could include the loss as well as exactly. longevity, right? So uh, when we lose someone that we love dearly, it's true that once they are gone physically, we now are reminded that they're still here with us emotionally and spiritually and energetically. Mm-hmm. So because we're not being distracted by their physical presence, we're now more present to their real gifts to us, which are way beyond the physical, way beyond mm-hmm. their being here so I can see them, hear their voice and hug them and, and kiss them and all of that, right? Yep. So that now when they're not in our face physically, we can appreciate their voice or the memory of their voice. We can now be more present to their touch and the memory of their touch in terms of how that affected us, how that changed us, how it transformed us, how it comforted us, how it taught us, right? I remember uh, my husband was uh, much older than I, 16 years older. And uh, I was, uh, you know, not as experienced in life and love and everything as he, and he had been married and and divorced. And I inherited his children uh, who came to live with us which is another whole conversation. Mm -hmm. But we went through some of the inevitable stages of adaptation and getting to know one another and and, uh, making adjustments and all that sort of thing. So with all really uh, 
truly intimate relationships, we also have the opportunity in that relationship to do some of the healing work that may have gone back to our childhoods, right? So he had his own stuff, I had my own stuff. And of course that was all brought up in, in front of our faces. And there were often times that I'd be so angry, so triggered, so frightened, so reactive. Mm. And luckily he was older and wiser. So he would not react to me. He would hold me. And as I wanted to pound his chest, he would look <laughs> at me and say, it's okay, Bubala. It's yeah. okay. I'm here. Right? Yeah. So there was, now, I don't know how he passed away, but uh, was there notice that you had that something was happening? It was a 10 year journey of dementia. I see. Mm. So I slowly watched him slide down that, that slippery slope in which he became ever so distant to me. Mm. He, had, he had a form of dementia called diffuse Lewy body disorder. Okay. which he every now and then would come back and he would be present. He would mm. be clear. He would be uh, able to actually recognize me. And mm. then I'd walk into the room the next day and he'd say, where's my wife? Get out of here. I want mm. my wife. And I'm standing right there, right? Yeah. So, so that was part It's got to be hard, I'm sure. Very hard, very hard. And I had my own, you know, I had my own terrible journey. I, I, I developed things like Bell's palsy. That was my physical reaction to the stress and, and knowing that, you know, this was a loss, never knowing when he would actually pass and actually he lived five years longer than the doctor said he would. So it was on and off uh, hospice, you know, seven times. It was, you know, this ongoing wonder and this ongoing uncertainty. When, when is, when is that moment going to come, you know, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And that was my gift without realizing if someone had told me at the time that this was a gift, I would have punched them in the face. Right. Mm -hmm. Of course. And, you know, you know, how dare you, but it was a gift in learning inner resilience, inner strength, inner flexing of a muscle of, of, of being forced to face uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And yet I had to stay above the waterline. I had to make a living. So when he was first diagnosed, I was a functioning cantor mm -hmm. in a synagogue being a teacher and a singer, having to take charge of a large congregation and, mm -hmm. uh, and families and all that sort of thing. So I had to be at the top of my game. I had mm -hmm. to be able to function. I could not just fold. And of course that Bell's palsy experience reminded me I'm human. Mm -hmm. and, you know, I did have that, that folding and I had to really regain some strength from that episode. But uh, it, and, and, you know, when, when our loved one receives that diagnosis, you're right. You begin mourning from that moment. Yep. Right. But with the actual physical passing, which I thought I had made my peace with, as you said, for you, you know, you were shocked to discover the extent of the real grieving that took place. And you're realizing on a whole different level, what mm -hmm. you lost. Yes. Yep. Yes, absolutely. What I was going to say, though, in terms of, I would say the the actual diagnosis, and then, in my case, I actually quit everything, because I just felt I, I, there wasn't even time to sleep. On the one hand, juggling the kids and making sure that they were not, they were already was all turbulent anyway. It was just minimizing the turbulence and engaging them in ways that that they could do something with me together while I was in the hospital, back and forth running 
you know, she was in the hospital for 200 years over those three years. But, but truth be told, during those three years, as a primary caregiver and as her husband, I just never felt more love for her during that time. Because obviously you, you, you feel the loss coming. It's already stage four. I don't know what the, the doctors and Dr. Google said it was three months or something and we got three, three plus years. So that was great. But the idea was just to keep her alive with chemo and other things just to, but, but she didn't lose any consciousness. She was aware and alert and present. So I would say I was probably the most present ever during that time and, and very possessive too about the time that I was spending. Time. I, yeah. I, I think what, what you're pointing to is the awareness of the preciousness of every moment. Exactly. Right? Yeah, and, as you were talking about the embracing the uncertainty, et cetera, because, mm -hmm. you know, we now live and teach that, but, but I'm able to live and teach that because I didn't know I had to embrace uncertainty so many times in my life, but with that particular loss, it was it was incredible that life is too short. What am I? So the entire shift with my relationship with my with my not only my boys but my older kids, it's it's just it's incredible because I was really blessed to have the support of. I mean, that's when you call, when you call on the support and you get it. You can call on the support and not get it. I was I was. I was open to support that I've never been. I felt so vulnerable, but it, in that vulnerability and sharing is also that I got a lot of people in the community to come and you know, help us, mostly because she was amazing, but also that they knew that you know, it, was, it, was gonna be, it was gonna be a hard road ahead. And then my kids and all were, were just totally. So you, know, you, you also attract because when you, when you are open and vulnerable, you get that gift of, of connectivity with others too. And then with that connectivity, it that fosters greater empathy and compassion. Hmm, well, exactly. um, it, 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 when we're cracked open, Raju, mm -hmm. our defenses go out the window. Yeah. And we learn the value of surrender. It's almost like life is inviting us, sometimes insisting that we uh, sit down at the table of surrender mm -hmm. with certain things. And, and the many times that you face death, uh, six times, as you have uh, yes. alluded to, you know, it, you learn from those experiences previous to, to your dear wife and her illness and passing. You mm -hmm. already have become well acquainted with how precious and short life could be at any moment when mm -hmm. you least expect it, right? Yeah. So it's almost like life was preparing you before you uh, had this experience with Kim to- Well, it certainly seems that way on reflection and, and in hindsight. As I said, three, you know, even after she was diagnosed, we had two other uh, joint you know, car, car accident and a couple other things that, that literally put us into, like the accident did not kill her. It was still the cancer that killed her. Um, and right. we all survived those accidents too. So it was just, yeah, I mean. Um, so, so I'm reflecting on my own experience. Uh, my, my husband's been gone over 15, 15 years now. Mm -hmm. And in, in those years, I've, I've met a couple of uh, special men that have you know, enrich my life. And yet what I've noticed about myself in 
going in the direction of a, a full out, a, a committed long-term relationship, there's a part of me that I must admit resists it. Mm. Now, Explain I, that to me. How do you mean that? Well, I'm not sure what the resistance is about. For me, I know that I'm happy with my work. I'm busy with my work. And at this stage of life, men who are of the same age uh, that I am or the same area of, of the yeah. age, right, very often are retired and want someone who's available to them, you know, more often, you know, a lot, right? Yep. I don't live that kind of life. So it takes a very special kind of man to be willing and able to have me in his life, but not have me available. Nor, and, and quite frankly, I've been living a single life for a long time, right? It's often said, if you live a single life long enough, you might not want to be coupled with someone. You might want to date, have a companion, but not necessarily live in. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and, and quite frankly, I'm not sure if there's a part of me that's having a difficult time believing that I could have the same kind of special, deep relationship that I had with my husband. So I'm not even going to go there. And so I have enjoyed, you know, different levels of connection and loving relationship, even sexual relationships, but not on the same level. I don't know what you've discovered. Well, now we're going to get intimate here. <laughs> you don't have to. But but it's more about whether or not you've noticed that your 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 grief experience, your loss experience, has uh, has enabled you to to foster the kind of courage that's inevitable with wanting to be uh, vulnerable to someone else in a committed long-term relationship. I mean, undoubtedly. So, you know, well-meaning friends in the, in the in the community and and very helpful people wanted to set me up with with you know people in the area that they knew that they were single and I was single. And just after about a year or so after her passing. Um, and so the, the only thing advised was, well, what, if you're not out there, how would you know? And I go, I, I just don't know that I'm, uh, you know, prepared. And also, as you were saying, as you were talking about this experience that you've had, how do you know at what level deep inside of you, you would not be benchmarking this relationship with that always, right? Because that's, you've had this rare experience of the magical love you had, and now no matter what, no one's going to come close, right? So As I say, it's a hard act to follow, right? It is, it is. But it's also, so until you're out there, it's hard to know. So for me, you know, it took a while. And then I think in like maybe year three or something like that, I did have a, a, a short relationship, which was you know, three or four months. Uh, her complaint was that, I guess, I, she will never stand up uh, you know, to, to, the, to the wonderful Kim that Kim was. And I just felt, I just felt that that was, a, in a, it, it just didn't feel that that was the right comment, but I'm saying deep inside, I don't know if that's the case. Uh, I then held back uh, to go out because I just felt like unconsciously I was, perhaps doing that, maybe talking a lot about her or in, in references to, to situations, I would probably bring that up because it's such, such an inseparable part of me. She's an inseparable part of me. And in these relationships, when you introduce your, your, you know, them to your children, now you're serious, right? So 
So I've had two of those. And I, I, at, at some point, I just had to both, I had to break them off because I just felt maybe I'm not ready for this prime time. And, and then you do the usual thing when the kids go to college and you know I'll be okay, I'll be free. Uh, and, and frankly, for the past 18 months or so, I haven't been able to really, other than having blind dates and, you know, mm-hmm. just have one, one time, you know, meetings, et cetera. I haven't really moved much beyond, most likely because I think I have gotten to know myself a bit better, you know, at, in this context and, you know, making love. I mean, I think I have an incredible amount of love to give. Uh, because once you're loving, you're a loving person, it doesn't matter, you know. Mm-hmm. And then, then I was going to ask you as well, that, you know, do you believe that you can love more than once since you're the love doctor? I, I mean, I, I, think it's, I think it's possible. And, and part of it is the permission, right, that we all give ourselves to go forward. I actually had my wife's permission. She called me one day in, in you know, quietly to talk to her about, uh, she said she wanted to talk to me about being letting go and just be open to love and love will find you. These were her words to me a month before she actually passed. And I, of course, said, what are you talking about? You're here. I'm here. Why are we talking about the future? We're living in the moment. We're all living in the moment type of people. And whatever happens, happens. Well, good for her. She was giving you permission. Yeah. Right. Because that is an issue for, for many people many of us who have you know, lost uh, a great love, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the kind of um, default mode of want, not wanting to be disloyal mm-hmm. uh, because we lost our love, not we chose to, it was thrust upon us kind of thing, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and getting back to what uh, Eric Fromm says, love yep. is an attitude, it is a way of being. It's not with just one person. So when I, at the age I met my husband, mm. I, I was looking for a life partner. I was looking to have family. I was looking to, you know, to share a life. Well, I'm at a different stage of my life now. Mm. So perhaps our needs change. And maybe it's, it, and it's very important to acknowledge that as we change, as our experience in life has, has opened us up, has expanded us, has broken us open, has cracked us open in, in many ways. Mm-hmm. It's also uh, important to recognize that perhaps our needs have changed or our lifestyle has changed to the extent that I, Raju, I'm happy at, with my life with or without a life partner. So I have a, a, a couple of very special men in my life, but they're not like living with Mm. me or they're not my life partner, but I cherish the nature of the relationship itself. Mm. And so without insisting that it has to be a particular way, my job is to be truthful with myself about myself at this point, asking myself, would I really want to live with someone full-time at this stage of my life, having gotten used to being single and doing things my way in my time, having my schedule, and I'm often at it from six in the morning till till 11 o'clock at night. Do I really want to have the complication that goes with adjusting to someone who might have an entirely different set of needs that maybe I don't want to have to adjust to? 
right? So mm. I'm at this point, I am uh, kind of making my peace with where I am at this stage of my life, recognizing that I love many people mm. dearly, and I enjoy the freedom to do so my way without insisting that it has to be in a so-called traditional setting. Um, and to, so it's about the essence over the form, right? Is what you're saying. Yes, exactly. So I, I feel like I'm open, right? The other person may not think so, but you know, I think perhaps like you, I, we're, we've all gotten used to being comfortable with ourselves. I'm a very happy person by myself. And, but if someone hears that, you're a happy person by yourself, so you don't really need anybody. So this neediness that will you some sometimes you run into someone who's ready, you know, you feel like they're more needy than you are, also rubs off the wrong way. I would really, I am very open to sharing my life with someone who I accept as they are. I don't need to worry about their habits and I'm fully accommodative in, in whatever way they could, you know, live with live with me or live with live with them. I'm I'm okay with that. Um, but I just haven't, haven't really, I think in my heart, my heart is open. I just haven't found that person. And, and in these days of online mm. dating and so on and so forth, I just feel, look, in the old days when there wasn't, it wasn't that easy to date back in the early nineties, when I first met him, I mean, mm. you had to either, you know, belong to single bars or go to book clubs or places where you could find, you know, maybe you go to take yoga classes or whatever else. I met her on the subway. So, so I do believe that if it is to happen, it's going to happen as long as my heart's open. Uh, and I'm not, because ultimately they want to be accepted as who they are. Like I want to be accepted as who I am, as I am. And I don't want them to try to change me and I don't want to change them. I know it sounds easier said than done, but isn't that what, you know, wisdom at this stage, certainly you're, you're, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit younger than you, but not by that much. Um, I feel like, you know, we're more, more wise and therefore uh, it, it comes with a, with a certain amount of uh, a price for someone to pay apparently because there's a presumption that we're already, you know, done and found the love of our lives and lost it. And why am I getting in your, into your life at this point? Or it's just that, hey, the wise person will come along. And I'm just... Well, part of what you're that. pointing to is the similar experience that we both had in that when we weren't looking, the love of our life just fell into our lives. Exactly, exactly. So you were busy being you, I was busy being me, and I certainly wasn't looking. And on the subway, you certainly weren't looking. And to perhaps trust in the uncertainty of life and to be clear about what your intention is now. In other words, if you are feeling this craving or this emptiness and you really, really felt a missing, mm -hmm. uh, that's one thing. But what you're saying is, you now know the difference between needing and wanting. Exactly. There was a time I thought I needed a man in my life to be complete, to complete me. Yep. And to the extent that my husband and I 
serve that purpose to complete one another, help each other heal our stuff, what, whatever that process was. That was then and this is now. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel as much of a need for a specific kind of relationship as much as I feel a desire to be in relationship with everyone in my life. Mm-hmm. In which That's beautifully I, said. In which I am a lover mm-hmm. with everyone, whether it's you or Trisha or my old boyfriend or my, my lover of almost 15 years who came back into my life two weeks ago or, <laughs> <laughs> or, or someone that I met online uh, last week who's a lovely man and we're just having conversations and I texted him this morning saying, uh, is it okay if I call you tonight about seven? I'll be done. He said, yeah, call me. Very easygoing, nice guy, lovely man, also widowed. Mm-hmm. And, and to allow things to go where they naturally want to go. So mm-hmm. I'm not pushing. I'm not insisting. I'm not needing. I think perhaps what I've learned in having had the experience of the love of my life is that I don't have this clawing need for someone to fill that empty space. Exactly. So glad you said that because I think you picked up on what I was saying that when, when I was not looking and maybe my heart was open, but I wasn't looking. And then suddenly, you know, I got this bolt from the blue, um, you know, Kim, it's the same way. So you start expecting at some point when you start expecting it's going to happen again, then you're setting up a resistance. So and, and by the way, that expecting comes from a need, which comes from yeah. a thought, which comes from a belief. Like I have to have that, yeah. or I'm expecting it because I want to have the same thing I had, but I lost it. Exactly. Which is missing the whole point of having something precious. What if what we had is a once-in-a-lifetime experience that's unique in itself? And if I'm looking for that, I'm going to be missing something else that's unique. Exactly. So I agree. So I think. Over, the, over these past three years, I feel like I'm releasing, I'm forgiving and myself and releasing any attachments to, to whatever it may be. So I haven't felt the neediness for about a year and a half. And it's just a reference, a point in time in the linear time. But, you know, I'm, I'm open as, as I ever was and whatever happens, happens. But the key is that you feel satisfied content with where you are in your with yourself in your relationship with yourself and i think that relationship with yourself therefore becomes the the more important thing and it doesn't matter uh who what type of person what color shows up in my life or it doesn't show up it's okay right because life's too short i want to just focus on focus on the here and the now and but there is, a, there is a thing that if you're not out there or if you're not in, in these platforms, then not that you're missing out, that then you're not really out there because it's in this COVID time. It's a very different all game in a way. Yes, yes, uh, <clears throat> for sure. But, but we find a way to connect if we want, yeah. right? Yeah, and then your point about being, you know, being loving and sharing that love with not, not just your family, but your friends and your colleagues. You know, if I am coming from the heart and I've had, I've learned over the years that it is everything as we've talked about and it's the congruence between the mind and the heart. And I think I had 
lost my connection to the heart for, for a while because it was very hardened by many experiences. And over these past few years, that release is starting to, or has happened in a big way. And it's important to, to just be kind, generous, loving with everybody. And there is love of all kinds. I mean, you teach about that. And, uh, and I keep learning about when you say make love better in, in every aspect of your life. You know, I think my children's relationship with me is at a different level today than, than ever was. Um, every relationship is in a different, it, it takes a different form. And, um, but the essence is, is very clear that it's, it's uh, you know, I think of my eulogy, right? At the end of life. And I want my children to say only nice things about me. They all, people will all, always say nice things, about, nice things about people, but this will be genuine and heartfelt. I, I don't want them to cook up something nice about dad uh, or granddad, as the case may be. Right, right. So the challenge for, for all of us, you, me, and, and the world around us and the people that we move with and, and interact with and people that may be joining us for this podcast. The challenge is to not allow our disappointments and our losses and our, the, the painful dis, uh, um, uh, missings that mm -hmm. we've had in our, that we don't allow that to close our hearts. But rather to acknowledge that it's an opportunity since we were cracked open, keep our hearts open, right? That the opportunity in suffering the pain of loss is to recognize that the richness of our lives is in acknowledging being present to the people who are right in front of us, right. who are in our lives, and to honor the gifts of the people that we're missing. Mm. Say, Thank mm -hmm. you so much for being a part of my life, giving me the gifts of myself, exactly. right? Yeah. So that love is not about need. Love is about sharing who we are without looking over our shoulder at who's going to give, give it back to me. Right. If I mm -hmm. give you this, then you can give me that, right? Mm -hmm. And love is not a transaction. Mm -hmm. So often, and when we're younger and more stupid, we think love is a transaction. And somehow when we suffer the loss of the love of our lives, we understand, oh no, love is not a transaction. Mm -hmm. It is a full out experience of being who we are. And when we suffer the loss of that special person in our lives, we understand their gift to us was, yeah. was, was showing us the value of life itself. Absolutely. So they're, they were part of our journey uh, and we're still here and they're not. But I guess we have more to learn in our, you know, spirits who are in these human bodies for a short period of time. And I really feel like when you when you describe that in that way, I just feel, yeah, love is abundant and there is not, you know, if this, then that. And if you do this for me, then this person will give me the love. You know, if you're giving love to anyone, it doesn't mean you get that, get it back from them. It could be from anywhere. And it's all yeah. good. Because everything is energy. Everything every is thought energy. is an energy. Every belief is an energy. Every word is an energy. Everything we drink, I'm drinking my healthy coffee right now. Mm -hmm. Everything we drink is energy. Everything we eat. Every music we listen to. Every person we spend our time with is an energy. So love is 
I do believe love is who we essentially are. And mm-hmm. the extent to which we block our hearts, we close our hearts because we're afraid of being hurt. Mm-hmm. That we're actually saying, I'm going to close my heart because I'm afraid of living. Yes. Yes. Because one of my teachers, Neil Donald Walsh, said, um, if you want guarantees, you don't want life. Exactly. So it's, it's, it's as if you don't want, you know, it, it, or, or love is life ultimately, right? Isn't it? Love is life. In other words, if I'm willing to be open to the full range of emotions, ranging from the deep, dark emotions of pain, of loss, mm-hmm. and disappointment, and sadness, all of that, if I'm willing to go there, I'm also able to go high. Exactly. As they say, as, as above, so below, as below, so above. Mm-hmm. And as a singer, I learned long ago from a voice builder who helped me develop my voice, which uh, I wasn't too shabby for about 25 years getting paid to sing. Yeah. So I learned that by developing the lower voice, I could hit the high notes. Hmm. I didn't know that. That's right. Right. So it, it's all about grounding. So if I develop that lower resonant voice, it gives me the basis for developing the high notes up here. You know, it's, it's, it's all physics, right? So I know that if I create the obstruction, if I deny myself from feeling pain of disappointment and loss, I'm also cheating myself of feeling great joy. And I must say, at this stage of my life, the level of joy that I am capable of with simple moments, like having a conversation with my grandchildren or visiting my niece who's recently relocated from the West Coast, and we, we are able to see each other in person. I go upstate to visit her every now and then. Or to, to receive a, a note from someone on Facebook who's one of my students who said, Cantor Pearl, I just want you to know I just became a rabbi because of you. I mean, I mean you know, yeah. these, are, these are the things that give me such joy mm. because I understand the significance of things much more now because mm. of my losses, because yes. of my disappointments, right? Mm. So I rejoice in life every single day because I've been willing to feel the full range of emotions. Mm. So if you want to live in a safe lane, you want to live in the safe zone, you're cheating yourself of the heights. Well, that's beautifully said. So I used to think of these heights and uh, lows as in, you know, as in above and so below in, the con- in a different context, which used to be that if life's throwing a big curveball at you, you can, you can go deep and get depressed or you find the strength because all life has also given you the strength to find that in you to counter or surmount that obstacle that you're currently facing. Uh, but I hadn't heard it in the context that you just described. So I remember my first kiss with my husband, mm. but the kiss I remember with more sweetness was the last kiss. Mm. Because between the first kiss and the last kiss was a universe of experience. So with that last kiss resides everything from the first kiss to the last kiss. So that to me is an example, a metaphor 
of how and why it's important to trust in the uncertainty. Mm. Take, take, take a chance, take a leap. You don't know where it's going. I love it when people say they just started to date and then one of them or the other will say, well, I, I don't know, where is this going? And my answer is, why don't you just let it go where it wants to go? Why are you trying to write the script in advance? Right. <laughs> you know, someone else said recently about innovation and marketing are the two main drivers of any business, right? And, but apply that to your relationship. When you were first dating your, you know, a loved one or somebody you thought was going to be a potential partner of yours, you were just there innovating, maybe presenting them in the best light, yourself in the best light, dressing up, you know, uh, all the way to, you know, all nines and, and then you got married and then you just, you start innovating or marketing yourself to them. Well, and then that, you use that. that's a great reminder that it's true. Once you have had the high of meeting each other and connecting and all of the chemistry and the euphoria and everything, then you get together and you get married and all of that. I mean, the, 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 possibility is that you grow that that That's you expand right. that and the reality of most couples because i've been working with couples for 40 yeah. years right the reality of most couples is once they get married they kind of let it all hang out right and they stop they stop That's innovating right. you're right they stop innovating I, I like to tell the story of my grandfather and his second wife who's the only grandmother i knew because my father's mother died when he was a year hmm. old so my grandfather went out on a mission to find a mother for his son. And he mm. met her uh, with the Farm Bureau. Uh, years ago, there was something called the Farm Bureau and they would have the Farm Bureau dances on Friday nights. So mm. he'd go to the dances and he met his uh, later to be wife, Mildred. Um, and uh, that was my grandma. Uh -huh. And uh, they got married. And the, so the Friday after they got married, she got all dressed up to go dancing. <laughs> and he's sitting there in his t-shirt. And, uh, and he looks at her and she, and, and, and she, and she, he says, where are you going? And she says, Ike, well, oh, you're not dressed. He said, where are you going? He said, she said, well, we're going dancing. He said, no, we're married now. <laughs> I think from that moment, he was in deep trouble with her. She was oh, really angry. <laughs> right? Well, I think, uh, I'm sure you've had those moments with your, in your married life with your loving husband and so did I like, but I was very careful knowing that you don't just want to let it hang out. So I, I mean, I did my best. It probably wasn't the best always to just keep it fresh and, you know, send her the love notes, but I used to send her completely out of the blue on sticky notes and, you know, little cards out of nowhere. And I did not believe giving gifts only during occasions because that was always an expectation. Whereas you just do something out of the blue at a completely nondescript time of the the year and it just created you know other wonderful things so i remember about three years into my marriage and my husband and i uh, were married in the midst of some crisis and tragedy and his his teenage children came to live with us and mm -hmm. it was a very tumultuous time it was very difficult <clears throat> so you know our our wild fantastic romance had become very uh, become a very stressful life with all kinds of complications and mm -hmm. hard work and difficulties and family issues and stuff. 
So I was bereft. Mm. I was inconsolable. I was convinced that our great romance was dead, that it was all over. And I was curled up in the chair in our bedroom, kind of in a fetal position, crying. Mm. <clears throat> and he walked in one day and he said, Bubala, what's the matter? I, and I, it's all over. It's all, it's all dead. It's all beyond. He said, and he gathered me in his arms, just like he did all the time. So I wanted to pound on his chest. He said, I know we're, we've been having some rough times and I haven't been paying attention to you as my, my sweetheart. Mm -hmm. So let's reinvent our marriage and uh, let's consider this the, the beginning of the next chapter. And from that point on, he really took charge of paying attention to date night. And he, oh, by the way, before that, he'd always pick me up a little something. He was always thinking of me. He'd mm -hmm. you know, go into a store and see something he thought I'd like. And, and he had great taste and he would mm -hmm. bring something home. No reason, you know, <laughs> uh, and it did make a difference. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's because of his choosing to be more present and not just with getting gifts or whatever, and also his great sense of humor. Mm. And, uh, you know, it really goes to, you know, we all need to be seen and heard. We all need to be understood. Oh, yes. mm -hmm. And he did see and hear me and he did understand me. And that was a great gift mm. because, and that, that persisted throughout, through his, throughout his illness, mm. you know? So that was very, very precious. Um, I remember the day he decided to stop eating, I knew he had decided this was it. Mm. It was almost this, you know, he was conscious, he was awake, he was aware. And I came oh. into his room, <clears throat> I said, uh, uh, Lenore tells me, that was his nurse, tells me that you refuse to eat. He said, that's right. I said, are you, mm. ready? Are you ready to go now? Yes, I am. Oh. I said, you're not afraid? No more. Mm. And he looked at me with clear eyes and he said, and I will be with you forever. I love you. And two days later. Wow. That's almost verbatim what Tim told me. Yeah. I'm always with you. Yeah. And you know something? There's one. What to, he is. Yeah. He is with me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I see him. Uh, very often when I'm officiating at a funeral or a wedding, it was a rabbi taught me a lot of what I learn to to do i feel like he's standing you know he's got his hand on my shoulder i officiated a funeral a couple weeks ago and uh i felt he was right with me hmm. and i talked to my grandson look you know just kind of just very much like my husband i feel like my husband's right there smiling you see we 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 done good sheila we done good <laughs> i was gonna tell you something on a lighter note here um that anytime we had an argument that we were you know it was mostly about a couple of different things in our lives it's either about how to bring up children because i've had two and you haven't had one and i'm telling you how that worked and that worked so so oftentimes she had an incredible way to disarm disarm you with one sentence are we on the same side or not oh, that's a great line like oh Oh, uh, what do you mean? We're arguing, but we're on the same side. So what are we arguing about? Okay, you may have a different point of view. We can just say, that's an interesting point of view because I, am, I tend to be very 
sometimes judgmental, presumptuous, and that's kind of how it was. But I probably still am. But the thing is that I have the point of view. That's an interesting point of view. Uh, you mentioned Neil Walsh. Is that the guy you Neil, just... Neil Donald Walsh, yes. No, I used to read about him, and I, I read a couple of his things too. So, you know, he talks about affirmations as opposed to affirmations. One of them was this, you know, um, you know, coming out of this whole thing about coming on, be on one side or on the other side. What are you arguing about? And are you on the same mission or not? And it would just completely, so it was, it was that in the sense of humor. She would start laughing when we're in the middle of an angry, you know, argument. <laughs> it's like, what are you laughing about? Oh, come on, lighten up, you know? And just like, <laughs> you change your state. You suddenly change the whole situation. You're reminding me of a time we're about 20 some years into our marriage and there had been a buildup of something that annoyed me over the years. Um, and it's in the, in the context of what uh, some people talk about wabi-sabi. Uh, Ariel Ford uh, has written a book about wabi-sabi and uh, the notion of wabi-sabi is that uh, you have a precious vase and it falls and cracks. You mm. repair it with gold. Mm. And that gold makes it even more valuable because now it's fallen and it cracked and it's been repaired. So now it's, it's even more precious. Mm -hmm. so, so she tells the story of uh, uh, the poppy seeds that uh, a husband and wife are in, in their beautiful white kitchen and everything's white. And, and uh, Margie's husband, David, loves uh, poppy seed bagels. So every time he brings his poppy seed bagels home from the bakery and he slices them open, it leaves these little black poppy seeds all over the place. And so, you know, this is over a period of many years and it's very annoying to her because she loves her white kitchen and now she has to clean it all up. And then when David dies, mm. he misses the poppy seeds. Oh. So anyway, so I'm telling the story for a reason. So over the years, my husband, God bless him, he'd leave the, the, the uh, tops off of the ketchup and the mustard and the mayonnaise. It'd drive me crazy. And I'd, I'll constantly complain, can't you just put the lids back on the mayonnaise and mustard and the ketchup? And one day I was in the kitchen and there those lids were there and everything else was in the refrigerator, but the lids were sitting there. I said, Aaron, can't you ever put the lids back? And I was, you know, kind of raising my voice. He said, Bubla, come here, sit down. Talk to me. On the overall scheme of things, how's our marriage doing? Is it 80-20? Is it 70-30? Is it 90-10? <clears throat> I said, well, about 80-20. He said, okay, why don't you focus on the 80? <laughs> well, that's that's that the kind of thing that, you know, so that's that was his way of disarming you and saying what's important. He hastened to say, <clears throat> hastened to say, I'm sorry, I don't mean to annoy you. I, I just, I, I'm busy making my sandwich and I forget. <laughs> yeah, I want to go through stories with Kim because, you know, if, if she ever made breakfast, it was basically a toast or something for the, for the kids. It was like as if an avalanche hit the kitchen because the kitchen was my place. And then ah. I'm sleeping, she's letting me sleep in. And instead of me being happy that she was taking care of breakfast for the boys or whatever it may be, I would be like, what is this kitchen? Like an avalanche hit the kitchen. 
And sometimes I would get that laugh. Sometimes it would get some angry, you know, grunt or like, are we on the same side? You're bothered by this? Clean it up yourself. You know, that kind of thing. Right. <laughs> and then when she died, which is where I was going to go, is like, now I feel like it's okay. Who gives a damn about the mess in the kitchen sometimes if it's there or the kids did something. Exactly. I'm much more tolerant. It's amazing. But I wish I was more tolerant then, you know? that's why we tell stories. That's why we have these conversations to heighten uh, our awareness and the awareness of people who are listening to the conversation that we can learn from other people. And that whole idea of the wabi-sabi is, you know, kind of a nice reminder that the very things that annoy you about people you love, you might very well miss it later. So acknowledge and now have us lighten up. Are Are we on the same side? Are the poppy seeds worth our relationship? Are the lids worth our relationship? Is the mess in the kitchen worth our relationship? Mm -hmm. The answer is, if you really want to think about it, of course not. I love your 80-20 because that's just life, isn't it? Like if we are so always focused on, in my case, 5%, forget about the 20. You know, I'm making my life miserable. And um, so the disarming thing about, are we on the same side always? I always remember that. And whoever, whoever you are, you know, whether it's your relationship with your loved ones, your kids, your spouse, your team members, isn't it all about if we're on the same side, then we can work together to grow out of it, right? Otherwise, it's we're focusing on the wrong thing. Exactly. So I, I think the bigger picture of this conversation as it's evolved right now is to recognize that when we love, there's only one side. Yeah. There's only one side. Love, there's only one side. If and when we allow fear or judgment to enter the relationship, now we have division. Now we have sides. Now we have, you know, a, a feeling of, of polarity and adversarial conversations that turn into fights because somebody somewhere has a need to be right. Yes. But if we can accept that you don't have to be right, you can say you have a point. Yeah. Or thank you for letting me see it another way. Yeah. Or thank you for stretching me. Thank mm-hmm. you for holding me while I was on the verge of a temper tantrum. Yeah. Or interesting point of view, as Neil. Or interesting wanted. point of view, exactly. Recognizing all of life is perspective. Yeah. So your perspective is your perspective. It's not the only reality. It's not the only perspective, but mm-hmm. I can honor you for yours. And mm-hmm. wouldn't you be curious about mine? Exactly. Yeah. And if we can be curious with each other instead of judgmental, mm-hmm. what a beautiful connection. Yeah, I guess I'm supposed to still learn this, uh, Sheila. <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, when the tsunami happened and we all survived, we used to have, well, we came back and we, we were like holding on to each other so tight that, that amazing that none of us in our family was lost or injured in any bad way. We were all a little bit injured. But, and then a week later after the tsunami, we were back in New York and we were, we had a little peace prayer. And that peace prayer became what we called the tsunami prayer, which then became TP, anytime we had any kind of a stupid fight, it would be 
Don't remember TP? What's more important in your life? All right, so we'll come back quickly to the tsunami prayer. My boys, the younger ones were two and six at the time. And so even now, sometimes when it gets to some kind of a, a ridiculous argument about something that's so unimportant in your life, we say, remember TP? All right, all right, I got it. You know, that sort of thing. It's a constant reminder that we got to get a perspective on what's most important in this moment. Well, it's the constant reminder we all have, despite the fact that some of us have been through tsunamis of one kind or another. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, we constantly need to be brought back to center. We need to have someone, you know, kind of knock us over the head sometimes and say, wait a minute, aren't we on the same side? Mm -hmm. Wait a minute, uh, don't we love each other? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, So that I mean, the point is we do lose ourselves sometimes in the shuffle. We do forget what we're all about. So all of life is, is the balancing act we're constantly doing. It's a dance. Raju, it's a dance every single day between the impulse of judgment and fear and the impulse of love and expansion. Always. Always. And that's the fun of the journey of, of this crazy life. So Raju, would you please, you know, I, the, we could have this conversation for wow. a very long time. So we'll probably need part two. But right now, I'm just mindful of the time. And I would like for you to be able to share with our audience what it is you are about in the world and how they can find you. You can find me in many places, but I will right now ask you to find me on livemasterminds.com where my business partner and friend, Trisha Ramos and I, you know, we are out there helping leaders, business leaders, uh, people who are would-be entrepreneurs or want to get more out of life. Uh, either, either life affects their business or business affects their life, vice versa. It's about self-mastery. And so that's what we teach. So livemasterminds.com and and there's other ways to find me, but I think that would be, this would be a great place. Wonderful. To. Well, I can attest to the fact that you have masterful, beautiful programs of which I've been a part, and you are one of my coaches, and I honor you and bless you and love you dearly. And we are friends, and we honor you, and we, we really love you, uh, Sheila. Thank you. So, everyone, until next time, this is Sheila Pearl, the love doctor, talking about making love better. Bye for now.